This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we explore the schooling received by children affected by the Trump administration's immigration policy of family separation. The Texas Education Agency recently said that the state of Texas and the school districts there have no responsibility uh, to educate the children that are being held uh, in these centers. And so that really puts the onus on, on the federal government and the decisions that they're making to educate these kids. My guest is Julian Vasquez Hyland, a professor of educational leadership and policy studies at California State University, Sacramento. Julian writes a blog entitled Cloaking Inequity. In a recent post, he reported on a Texas-based detention center forcing children to use an online for-profit charter school. A piece in the Wall Street Journal said that children at Dilly, Texas, quote, go to school most days. Uh, and I thought to myself, so they don't go to school every day? Um, so what that means exactly, uh, folks, uh, you know, the media is trying to get access to understand, because there's a couple of options here. The kind of education that could, these two children could be receiving on quote most days could be a purely online education uh, from K-12 anchored. Julian Vasquez Heilig, welcome to Fresh Ed. Glad to join you. So when the Trump administration decided to separate families crossing the border, it needed to provide educational services to the children while in these detention centers. Right. What kind of education was actually made available to these detained children? Well, that's a good question. Um, from best we can tell, uh, there's, there's been quite a different uh, set of approaches across uh, the different detention centers. One of the real challenges um, that policymakers, Congress people, um, other advocates uh, have discovered is that it's actually quite difficult, uh, even the media, uh, it's actually quite difficult to get access to these detention centers. And that's for a variety of reasons. But one of those probably uh, primary reasons that folks are citing is that many of these detention centers are privately operated. Uh, and because they're privately operated, uh, they have the prerogative uh, to not allow folks uh, onto, uh, into these camps, uh, into these areas. So uh, one of the first um, conversations was about Southwest Key. Uh, they're a, a nonprofit, so to say, that uh, is near Austin, Texas, and it also operates uh, in other parts of Texas. Uh, and the way that Southwest Key went about it is not only did they operate a detention center, uh, but they also operated a charter school, uh, a brick and mortar, so to say, uh, charter school. Then more recently, uh, this last week or so, we started to find out about another approach uh, in Dilly, Texas. Dilly, Texas actually uh, the South Texas uh, Family Residential Center is actually the largest immigrant detention center uh, in the United States. Uh, it has a capacity to hold 2,400 refugees and immigrants, uh, primarily women and children from Central America, but other countries too. Um, and uh, the conversations, uh, you know, the sources in Texas are saying that uh, they're using an online charter there. 
Um, so, uh, you know, as you look across these different detention centers, uh, there's different approaches. Um, but recently, the Texas Education Agency, uh, talking specifically about Texas, where many of these detention centers or these detention camps are, are located, the T- Texas Education Agency recently said that the state of Texas and the school districts there have no responsibility uh, to educate the children that are being held uh, in these centers. And so that really puts the onus on on the federal government and the decisions that they're making to educate these kids. So in, between these two different uh, detention camps in Austin, Texas, and in Dilly, Texas, how many children are we talking about? That's a really good question. I mean, that you know, I've seen news reports, of course, um, uh, it's hard to really know. I mean, I don't even think the Trump administration has a good hold on these numbers. If you've been following the news, uh, the ACLU and other folks that have been litigating uh, this, uh, they found it difficult to get exact numbers. But uh, they believe now that uh, the number of children being detained is in the hundreds instead of the thousands. But that's just the best information that the the administration has provided uh, to the media and other advocates. So I guess since it's it's such a sort of fluid situation that's happening and it's so diverse in terms of educational providers based on these different detention camps, why don't we zero in on one of them, which you have recently written about in Dilly, Texas? Um, so what who who is the service provider? for the education services that the children are receiving in Dilly, Texas? Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things that I don't think a lot of folks realize about this immigration debate is that it's actually a profit center. It's a moneymaker for corporations. So for example, the Dilly, Texas, uh, South Texas Family Residential Center uh, is run by an organization called Core Civic, which was previously, previously called uh, Corrections Corporation of America, which infa- infamously has been criticized by uh, the ACLU um, and is a for-profit prison company. So uh, I think that's one of the things that many folks just don't know about this immigration uh, conversation is that there are actually large corporations that are profiting from the detention of these children. Uh, there are corporations profiting from the detention of uh, families with their children. How is the money being earned, right? Where is the profit coming from? Well, so when, uh, the, you know, these different corporations have contracts. And so the average stay, my understanding is that the average stay at one of these detention centers is about a year. Uh, and so what happens is, is the federal government pays a fee uh, to the detention centers to hold uh, the families to, or, and with children or to hold the children separately uh, from their families to these large corporations. And, but that's, not, that's only half of the story. So half of the story is that uh, the Corrections Corporation of America um, is making money from their detention. But now you also see a for-profit online uh, charter school company coming into the conversation, uh, K-12 Inc. Uh, and their subsidiary that they spun off a couple of years ago uh, called Fuel Education has the contract uh, from uh, the federal government uh, to provide um, a online charter school education uh, to the children being detained 
at uh, Dili. So not only do you have uh, uh, corporations profiting from the detention of these families uh, in terms of, of you know, the, their, the camps, but also you have companies profiting from the education of the detention of these children and families. And so what do we actually know about fuel education? That's a really good question. Uh, it's a difficult question. So um, the way I, I was able to confirm that this was happening is you can actually go to LinkedIn right now. And I, I posted a, a picture, a screen capture of this that shows that fuel education is hiring uh, bilingual teachers in Dilly, Texas, because the traditional media hasn't yet covered this. Now, since I posted my blog post, I've received calls from members of the media and they're now uh, investigating, you know, what type of education, um, fuel education is providing there. A, a piece in the Wall Street Journal said that children at Dilly, Texas, quote, go to school most days. Uh, and I thought to myself, so they don't go to school every day? Um, so what that means exactly, uh, folks, uh, you know, the media is trying to get access to understand, because there's a couple of options here. So. One, you know, the kind of education that could these two children could be receiving on quote most days could be a purely online education uh, from K twelve Inc. Or they or they could be receiving a blended uh, approach, an approach where you know they have some online uh, and then they have some classroom experience, or perhaps which would I think would be unusual uh, a traditional classroom setting, which would be you know like what you would typically see in your local uh, neighborhood school. But uh, considering that K-12 Inc. and fuel education is involved, uh, it's believed, uh, and folks are still investigating this, whether uh, to understand how much online, how much blended, or what exactly is happening there for those kids. And do we know anything about the curriculum? Like, are they following the Texas state curriculum? Are they, like, what are they actually even teaching? That's a good question. So, um, you know, K-12 Inc., I think first it's important to say that uh, Cake 12 Inc. is, is infamous. Um, it's infamous in California because their subsidiary, uh, which is called Kava here in California, has more dropouts than it has graduates from its high schools. Uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, they also perform incredibly poorly. And, uh, and you can see research, for example, by Gary Moran. Uh, there's been research based by the National Education Policy Center um, and, you know, the predominance of the research literature, if you allow me to be the professor here just for a second, the predominance of the research um, and, and sort of and policy briefs that are out there say that K-12 Inc. Uh, provides a sub, has substandard outcomes for children. Uh, you could just go to your uh, Google Scholar or Google and type in K-12 Inc. and financial problems or type in K-12 Inc. and, and research. Uh, and you know, do some citizen research, and uh, it's pretty clear that uh, what K twelve Inc does has not been has has basically been unsuccessful just about everywhere they've operated. So what you have here is the federal government hiring a contractor that has a a really poor reputation uh, in 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 the research uh, uh, base and in, in policy briefs and other peer reviewed research, uh, and providing this substandard education uh, to these uh, immigrant kids. So that's what we know about uh, K-12 Inc. Uh, they've basically 
perform poorly everywhere they've gone. So, I mean, this might be a question you might not be able to answer, but why would the government contract a service provider that is known for having substandard outcomes? Well, that's a great question. Um, One of the interesting things about this is that the U.S. Secretary of Education was an investor in K-12 Inc. before she became Secretary of Education. Um, We know that Betsy DeVos is on the record saying that online charter schools are uh, a great idea. Um, I'm not quoting her exactly, of course, but she's been very supportive. We know that in general, Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos um, uh, are big supporters of of charter schools, including online charter schools. Uh, And it makes sense with this administration. Uh, During the campaign, Donald Trump promised to spend $20 billion on school choice. Now, Uh, There was a recent article in the press yesterday talking about how Betsy DeVos had basically failed uh, to implement a school choice agenda at that scale, at the $20 billion scale. But even though she wasn't successful uh, and and the Trump administration hasn't been successful at implementing uh, online charters and charter schools uh, writ large, where they have been successful... (laughs) Um, is allowing uh, charter schools uh, into these uh, detention centers where uh, immigrant students and their families are being held. So while for the general public we haven't seen an explosion of Betsy DeVos's ideology and support of online charter schools, uh, apparently in these detention centers uh, that has been the case. Do you think, I mean, if the states where these detention centers operate stepped in to say we will take care of the education for these immigrant children, these detained children, you know, would would we not see the, the choice movement operating so successfully? Well, first, you know, I, let me speak to two issues here. I, the first is that uh, essentially the Texas Education Agency in Texas has said that state funds can't be used to educate uh, the children in these detention centers. And they've very specifically Uh, instructed school districts not to do so. Now, the school districts where these detention centers are located have reached out to these detention centers from what my sources have told me and said that they're willing to educate these kids. But, uh, you know, oftentimes when we talk about the school choice movement, we talk about parents having a choice. Well, uh, this is an example of the federal government saying, you don't have a choice. We are going to force you to attend a online charter school that has a record of substandard outcomes. So it's kind of ironic, the school choice movement saying, oh, parents should have a choice. But in the case of Dilly and in the case of uh, these other detention centers, the parents have no choice. Uh, the only choice is this substandard uh, offer, um, the substandard online uh, charter school company. So I think that's problematic. So I mean, it's interesting, in some of these detention centers, from my understanding, the children were actually separated from families. So sometimes parents could not even make a choice because they weren't with their children. Yeah, that's adding insult to human rights injury, right? Um, it, this is probably one of the most embarrassing and despicable things um, that our government has done in some time. Uh, I think it's unfortunate because it's quite consistent with say what happened to Native Americans, uh, with the Carlisle School, um, back you know back in the eighteen hundreds, 
Um, the U.S. government took children uh, from Native Americans and sent them to Indian boarding schools uh, in Pennsylvania and other places. And, and, and the U.S. wasn't by, its, by itself in, in these activities, um, taking children uh, from their families and educating them in, in other settings, uh, Canada and other countries were also responsible for these type of heinous acts. So, um, and detention centers and detention camps are also not new to the United States. Um, Sulu from Star Trek, uh, he was detained in the Japanese internment camps uh, during World War II. So, um, take, you know, the U.S. government um, has a history of taking children uh, from uh, communities of color. Uh, the U.S. government, unfortunately, has a history of internment camps and, and detaining people against uh, their will. In the case of, of the Japanese internment camps, they were full-fledged American citizens. So uh, it's really quite unfortunate that we have that history. I also think it's quite unfortunate that many people don't learn that history uh, in their grade school years. or They don't learn that history often, even in their high school years. Um, so I, I, I think that's uh, also one of our challenges is that we have to stare down these sort of injustices so that history doesn't repeat itself. Uh, and so it's just it's quite unfortunate that our government um, separated these children. And I think that it's a real tribute to uh, those folks that, um, uh, that protested across the United States. It's a real tribute to, to Democrats and Republicans that put pressure on this administration. Uh, to stop this uh, human rights violation. I mean, I think it's a real tribute um, to uh, the courts. It's a real tribute to uh, the advocacy organizations, ACLU and other organizations um, that sought to stop this practice of child separation, family separation. But even after all of that, there are still hundreds of children um, that have been separated um, from, from their parents. Uh, and that are in these detention camps across the United States. So we, there's still work to do here. So I, I actually want to ask, a, a, I guess, a comparative question, um, because as you said there, you know, America has a rather long history of um, putting children in detention camps. Compared to previous times when there were detention camps, is a big difference that the education today in these detention camps is being provided by for-profit companies? Like back when there were the Japanese internment camps, was education being provided by for-profit companies? Well, of course not. Uh, you know, um, I actually, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, profiting from education and charter schools and school vouchers those ideas really came to prominence right around Brown versus Board uh, in the 1950s uh, when school segregation um, was outlawed. Uh, because as you know, for a long time, especially in the South, uh, you had de jure segregation, segregation required by Jim Crow laws in the North. You had essentially de facto segregations, uh, which were, the schools were segregated because of resident forced residential patterns and uh, redlining. So um, the sort of this neoliberal for-profit approach to education really didn't arise until about the middle of the last century. Uh, and it's uh, gaining steam uh, in the U.S., uh, gaining steam 
uh, in other countries. Uh, there's other forms of this sort of for-profit corporations. And for example, in Chile's had um, uh, school vouchers for quite some time. Um, although more recently they've started to pull back from for-profit schools. So this is, this is something that has been gaining momentum, uh, of course, after World War, World War II. Uh, it's a more recent phenomenon, last couple of decades. And so what do you think can be done? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like there's so many layers here that need to be worked out. I mean, and, and on you know, the one hand, there are these hundreds of children that are still detained that seem to take a big priority of, of the energy that needs to go into changing this system. But at the same time, there's this larger sort of issue of profit-seeking businesses in education systems. So I, you know, how do, what do we do, I guess? First, I think it's important uh, to educate the public on the performance of a lot of these uh, profit-seeking uh, organizations. Uh, I think we've done that a little bit in this conversation, talking about the research that we have on K-12 Inc. Uh, and their poor performance in California and Pennsylvania and, and many other places. So I think that's part of the conversation. Um, I think um, another part of the conversation is activating communities uh, once they understand uh, sort of what's at stake. Uh, so, you know, the organizing piece. I'm, I'm also the education chair for the California NAACP. Uh, and part of my role in, in, in the civil rights organization as education chair uh, is to educate um, African Americans and others about what's happening uh, with the privatization and private control of education. That there are people seeking to profit off the backs of our children, uh, and that, I've, I see that as a problem. So, uh, and then I think the third piece, I think the reason why uh, the media has taken so much heat uh, recently from certain quarters, um, not all quarters, is because sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think that the media has done really a fantastic job um, in really elucidating what's going on uh, in, in this specific uh, arena in, in terms of the family detentions. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's also important, uh, so you have sort of the traditional news coverage. Um, nowadays, we also have social and new media. So whether it be this podcast, whether it be posts on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, so we can each have a personal stake in having conversations about uh, family detentions and the education of these children um, and the illegitimate, illegitimate approaches um, to uh, dealing with uh, immigration uh, issues in our nation. So I think there's several ways um, that we can uh, address uh, and, and bring light to uh, what's happening uh, with these children and, and the education of these children in detention camps. What about researchers? I, I mean, one of the issues it seems to me is that, you know, education being provided by a private company that has no legal obligation to make information public, you know, what do researchers do in such an environment? So that's a really difficult question um, because, as you are probably very aware, the cycle for research is uh, a longer-term endeavor. So, uh, you know, the media has a much shorter uh, uh, research cycle for stories like this. But for 
her researcher to 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 and, and I actually had when I when I published that blog post, uh, one of my former students who's now a professor at the University of Buffalo, reached out to me and said, Julian, what can we do about this? And I thought, and first, my first inclination was, well, maybe we can try to get access to these camps. Um, and she said, we really have to be realistic. We probably won't get access to do conduct research. So, how can we gather the literature together to inform um, the research community about the implications of uh, family detention on the success of students, um, their long-term success? Um, so uh, those are conversations that we're having, and I, I, I think part of the, the, cha- the, you know, just the challenge of traditional academia is that uh, we, there are some limitations and we have a longer cycle for research. But I think in the short term, I think academics uh, have the potential uh, to mobilize knowledge um, through some of the means we talked about through social media and some of these other, you know, the blog post about this had about 10,000 views in a couple of days. Um, and so NBC and lots of other folks, uh, including yourself, called to talk about this. Um, and so I could have, you know, one choice was I could say, all right, let me put together, uh, together a literature review on the impact of family detention and the education of these children. And then about eight months later, you know, publish an article. Uh, we can still do that. But I, so it's not really a, an or proposition. It's an and proposition. I think we should do both. I think in the short term, I think that we should bring conversations about research uh, and the background of these organizations and the intent of these organizations and what's problematic about family detentions. Uh, Bring that to bear in in social and new media spaces. But then I also think it's incumbent upon academia to have, uh, you know, conduct the traditional research approaches, which have much longer timeframes. It's it's interesting. I, I have done a lot of work on private tutoring. And private tutoring, you know, it usually or it has sort of historically been seen as sort of connected to but separate from mainstream schooling. Mm-hmm. And one of the big challenges that researchers of private tutoring have had is getting access because, as you might know, lots of big for-profit companies manage private tutoring companies. Right. They have no reason to make their information public, how their students are doing, what they're teaching, why they're teaching what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but researchers have found ways of getting in over, you know, it, it does take a long time and it's much more qualitative sort of ethnographic sort of work that, that can come out of it, um, that can illuminate what's going on inside of these private companies. That's right. But with, with these for-profit charter schools sort of denying access to researchers and even just probably, you know, government regulation and government oversight, um, which would ultimately lead, I would imagine, to some sort of public documentation. Um, it seems as if, you know, the the mainstream education world that we live in or that we sort of assume is slowly moving over into that realm of private tutoring that I know so well, and it becomes this sort of hybrid system that is becoming very opaque, and it you know it just becomes more and more challenging to, as you said, to you know illuminate, add the sunshine, or create the sunshine that's sort of needed for sure. for people to actually make choice, right? I mean, that's to right. go back to that um, the original idea. I mean, it's just it's so sort of convoluted. Sure, and there's an important role that the media, that academics play in 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 this space in terms of sunshine as the best 
disinfectant. There's clearly a rule. I'll give you an example. So one of my doctoral students when I was on faculty at UT Austin before I came to California was studying um, special education in charter schools. And for those folks that are aware of some of the debates around charter schools is that they, on average, serve less special education students than neighborhood public schools. And so her dissertation was investigating this. And so she contacted uh, every charter in the state of Texas via mail. Uh, and she received back 15 responses saying that folks were interested. And then in the final analysis, only about 10 charter schools said yes to being studied, which is a real problem for the advancement of knowledge and accountability for taxpayer money. And uh, the fact that charter schools just didn't want to be studied. And because they're privately operated, they can't be forced to allow researchers to understand what's happening there and make that information and that knowledge available to the public. So that's one of the challenges as we make prisons private, as we make schools private, as we allow online for-profit charter schools to educate our children, uh, there's less accountability uh, to the public for what actually happens inside those walls. So the government could obviously require these for-profit providers to provide public information. I mean, so should we be lobbying the government to create these sort of regulations for, for instance, online for-profit charters? Sure. I mean, that, that could happen. Um, it could happen. But in places like California, uh, we're always debating transparency and accountability laws for for-profit and charter schools. I mean, not all charter schools are for-profit. In Michigan, uh, more than 80% of charter schools are for-profit there. In California, we have very, very few for-profit charter schools. In fact, uh, there's a bill in the legislature, uh, right now it's on the governor's desk, uh, for him to ban for-profit charter schools. And he's actually debating whether he should ban for-profit charter schools or not, uh, with himself, apparently. <laughs> so I, I think that that issue is something that we're going to have to wrestle with. And for for schools that are Catholic or, you know, just purely private, they don't have to report anything uh, to the federal government. So if they're receiving, for example, a school voucher, which is a pot of money uh, to attend a private school, um, uh, there's there's no regulation when it comes to private schools. So uh, with, with for-profit schools, at least there's a minimal amount of, you know, there could be a minimal amount of transparency and accountability. But when we're talking about pure private schools, they could be nonprofit, sectarian schools. Uh, there's absolutely no accountability for that taxpayer money. Well, Julian Vasquez Heilig, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It sounds like this is a topic that is going to need much more research and media attention going forward. I definitely agree. I enjoyed uh, joining you today. Julian Vasquez Heilig is a professor at California State University, Sacramento. His blog is Cloaking Inequity. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.